This is Software Defined Survival, where we talk to AVIT professionals and software developers to find out how to leverage software to reinvent ourselves and the way we do business. We listen to their stories and ask for advice and tactics on how to survive and thrive in a software-defined world. Today on Software Defined Survival. But the vast majority of rooms out there aren't complex. And I think the vast majority of solutions are over-engineered for something that's not a complex answer. I mean, I think WebRTC is poised to change everything. I don't think people would be buying systems if they knew the actual cost of support. You know, Google would have projects where a thousand rooms at a time would go in. And if your methodology is so labor-intensive, you're not going to be able to survive. My name is Patrick Murray. Audiovisual greetings to everyone listening today. Welcome to Software Defined Survival. Today's guest has had an interesting career path working for both AV integrators and consultants, and also on the other side of the equation too, for large end users like Hess Corporation and Google. He's had a nice mix of working in AV and IT, as well as some time in the film industry as a sound editor. He currently works as a consultant and has some really interesting ideas on how to manage and support AV projects. Colin Bierney, welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? Um, great, how are you? Doing well. Uh, living it up in used to be sunny Florida. I'm sure the sun will break today, but uh, today we're we're just hiding indoors. So uh, this is a good time to be podcasting. Yeah, indeed. It's freezing here, so I'm happy to be inside as well. <laughs> so is there anything about that intro that you'd like to correct or expand upon? Not really. Um, that kind of that kind of covers it. I've been I've uh, pulled cables in ceilings, and I've you know put together large managed service contracts that kind of run the whole gamut as far as the industry goes. And it's been a really, uh, really interesting ride. And I'm, I'm now just in my stage of um, consulting for myself and seeing where that goes. Excellent. So you mentioned pulling cables. How did you get started in AV? Tell me about your first job or project. I got started in, in AV. Um, I actually started on, uh, I started with guitar. I, I loved playing guitar. I loved going to uh, concerts when I started getting to college. And I realized, uh, you know, I always wanted to be in a band, but I realized at the end of the day, I would watch the sound guy get paid and everyone else would go home uh, <laughs> with maybe a, <laughs> maybe a free beer, a hot dog, or whatever the bar had to offer. And right. I said, oh, I really should be on the other side of this work. Uh, so I decided to uh, start doing a lot of mixing this was at the same time that I was doing a uh, working on an engineering degree in industrial engineering. And when I got done, I didn't really feel like going into the, I guess, the paths that were available. And so I went and just sought out some integration work. I went to a few folks that I knew and asked them if uh, they knew anybody that was hiring or, you know, what I, where I could get going. And I ended up on a, an installation crew just sort of dropped in and, you know, told me to go buy a soldering iron and some pliers and some stuff. And so I just showed up with a little bag and started doing it. And it was something that I really enjoyed and I really dug into it. And I was able to move pretty quickly from installing into being a uh, design engineer. Um, SPL picked me up after about six or eight months and me doing a few jobs with them and 
um, I think from there, things just sort of took off. So that was my introduction into the industry um, <clears throat> and my time on the integration side. And then um, following SPL, I, I kind of disappeared into the corporate world for the next decade before reemerging as a, as, a, uh, as a butterfly in the consulting side. That is an interesting analogy there, just uh, going into a cocoon and then reemerging as a butterfly. I like that. <laughs> um, so in AV, everybody has their nightmare projects. Can you tell me about your most rewarding AV project and what it made it special for you? Um, oh, man. I, I think probably the most rewarding was one of my most recent. I worked on Google's Singapore office and... Um, I had been tasked with <clears throat> basically there. There were two large event spaces. There's a customer space, and there's a massive video wall out in their lobby. It's one of the first things you see uh, when you come in the door of their of their offices. And for me, being part of something that was custom built, going actually getting to go to the factory in China for acceptance and testing and seeing how those are made. And then watching it all go up. I mean, I think from start to finish, um, that was so, it was so rewarding. It was so exciting to see where everything, you know, the whole kind of process and supply chain all the way down to having it in and up and running. Um, and thankfully, I was there to see uh, to see the opening, to see people's reaction to it. And it's such a stunning piece. I mean, it's probably 30 feet tall. You know, it's not the biggest video wall, but it's definitely... Impressive. Pretty, yeah. pretty imposing when you when you walk in, and they've been able to do a lot of really cool, uh, you know, cool welcomes for people that are that are visiting. They've been able to have you know local YouTube celebrities come in, and their their videos are just playing in a massive collage on the wall, and you know it's, they're super excited. And it's like that that to me is the best thing. It's like I, I appreciate really good wiring and good craftsmanship and you know intricate design, but when someone has a good positive reaction to AV. That to me is the most rewarding thing I can see. Yeah, um, I've uh, come up with that uh, once or twice already on this on this very young podcast. Is <laughs> when the install falls into place, it's it's really like wow. Okay, it's it's a very relaxing thing, and and uh, you know it's it's nice to have. But really, the icing on the cake is when you get to see how the system is being used. And um, yeah. as a programmer, that's something I hardly ever get to do. But when you when you actually get to see people experiencing what you created, that really is um, an amazing thing. That that really makes it all worthwhile. I think. I agree, and I, and that's kind of been my mantra for most of my career. I mean, one of the most impactful classes I had when I was in college was um, uh, this woman taught a course on user interface, and she she designs mostly cockpit layouts. And so her her impression of user design is like it has to be good and it has to be you have to be able to back out and things, you know, she's in a situation where she designs for things where if you switch the wrong switch, you could die. Right. You know, thankfully, <clears throat> I don't think you or I have ever had that that level of pressure. Um, but she she impressed on me the fact that there's you know, there's research and there's standards and there's there's reasons for everything you do, the size of the buttons and all of that you know, down, down to the details. And it really, that really piqued my interest. And as I started into SPL, I ended up similar to you. I ended up being a press run programmer and, you know, most of my days were spent over the next, you know, two and a half years 
designing interfaces and trying to get around and you know, get my head around the way that people work and interact with the thing that I build. And for me, going you know forward from there, that user experience was what drove me. You know, I, I wasn't, you know, especially being on the end user side, I wasn't really in the business of trying to meet quotas or please manufacturers. I was in the business of trying to please the people that had to use the technology. And I think that's a, you know, for me, that was a really key part of the way I work. And it's part of the way I work now. I mean, everything is, everything is based on making sure everyone has a good experience. I love AV, I like touching it and playing with it. And I want people to experience it the way I do. But they're not going to experience it that way if it's through a weird interface. I mean, I'm okay with that, and you're okay with that. We can play in those Windows 95 looking uh, dashboards and have a great time. But most people don't have that kind of enthusiasm. So I want to make it something that's pleasurable and kind of see the magic of what it is that we do. Yeah, it's not only the enthusiasm; it's that they usually have other goals and other expectations when they're in these rooms that we create. Um, like you mentioned, the the guy flying the plane, his his job is to fly the plane. <laughs> he can't really be too um, awed by the technology when he's got a job to do. And it's, it's the same thing, even when you're doing something as mundane as giving a presentation or standing yeah. in front of a room. You know, you just want the stuff to work, and it's it's secondary to uh, to what you're trying to do. So what was it like working at Google? It was massive. I, I think the biggest yeah. thing about Google is just the scale of things. I mean, I was able to work in, you know, 15 plus countries on projects, a lot of travel, a lot of um, interaction with different cultures. It definitely was a logistics uh, exercise in many cases. <laughs> um, you know, Europe, not as much. Uh, Asia, definitely. Um, but it was, I don't know, it was, it was a really good experience. It was a really good exercise in scale. And I think that's, you know, for me, I was glad to see someone that had sort of figured out scale because I think one of the problems that when I talk to other integrators, especially smaller integrators, they struggle with that because they have a method that works for 10 rooms, 20 rooms, 30 rooms. But when it gets into 100, 200, 500, you know, Google would have projects where a thousand rooms at a time would go in. And if your methodology is so labor intensive, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to survive, you know, as companies start getting to the scale, you know, and ultimately everyone is moving towards smaller, cheaper rooms and tons of them. You right. Know, the, the, the days of having one video conference room for the floor that everyone sort of vied for just doesn't really exist like it used to. And I think that sort of scale is, is really important. Um, it also gave me a you know, good insight into how to manage it. You know, in, installation is one thing, but managing a fleet of that size is, is another. You know, they're running 19,000 video endpoints. Uh, so <laughs> that's, you know, that's something most people aren't going to encounter at any point in their lives. And I was really, really happy to get a chance to work with that scale and understand it. And I think it, you know, it helps temper the conversation with other folks when they, you know, have have anxiety over the number of rooms they have. It's like, oh, it could be worse. It could be yeah. <laughs> 20 times that. <laughs> it is overwhelming. Um, so what are some things that uh, that you noticed operating at that scale that, that Google did or does to uh, kind of alleviate that that labor intensive type of installation, let's talk about the install side first, and then we'll talk about the management side. So I think on the install side, the 
one of the best choices they made and they, they continue to move towards is owning everything. I mean, they own the design. You know, okay. you don't, integrators don't make drawings. They can hand it a drawing and they go and they put it in because there's no room for variation. There's no room for product variation. There's one bill of materials. That's it. You know, any, any deviation from it means a deviation in standard from, you know, that affects support and affects their supply chain and affects the way that they buy, you know, because when they would buy, they would buy in large bulk, they would have agreements with, you know, with other companies that, they would buy X number of units and they would sit on them and distribute them for jobs as they came up. So I think that they, they understood that everything had to be as simple and as standard as possible. There's very little deviation uh, in their standard design. There had to be a really, really good reason for it. So it's um, it was all driven by kind of a very high level engineering, I imagine. Whereas in AV on a smaller scale, we're a lot more open to adjusting things kind of on the fly, maybe leaving things a little more open-ended. Um, yeah, both with pros and cons, I'd imagine. Yes and no. I mean, I think the pros are, you know, a lot of the pros that exist aren't visible to users. Users will complain that, well, I wanted it this way or this isn't quite right. But, you know, that's that's obviously a con. But I think on the pro side, you're able to provide such a high level of of experience across yeah. all of that. You know, as you start getting variation, the experience starts suffering from one room to the next. And you and I have both been in that situation where you go from one room to the next to the next and every room looks different. Every touch panel looks different. Every piece of experience is different and people develop preferences. But, you know, their users know that if they walk into a certain type of room, it's going to behave a certain kind of way. There's no there's no uncertainty and there's no question about it. Yeah. It makes it a a lot more usable when when things operate differently from room to room, it it almost becomes unbearable to, uh, for the end user to even, to even figure it out every time. And uh, they wind up not using the technology. Agreed. And and I think the tact that they took and, and, you know, finally put a name to, and it's something that I've, you know, done in the past as well as you, it becomes a product. The room itself is a product you treat it like a product. It has a life cycle like a product. I think there's a lot to be learned from the way, you know, it's not exactly the same, but the way, you know, app developers with product managers run. It's like, well, we have a product, we have features, we talk to users, we get more features, we figure out if we can retrofit them or we have to release a new product or a new version. And it has this, it has this nice clean life cycle that kind of builds itself and it's built off of, user fed, you know, user fed feedback. And I think in their case, you know, when you call it a product, it makes it a lot easier to say, well, there's no variations. I mean, there's slight, you know, they had slight variations built in that you could work with, but it's like going to buy a car. It's like, you don't really get yeah. yeah. You don't, you know, you go and it's like, well, can I have a different engine? Like, no, go get a different car. This isn't, you know, this isn't what we do. You know, you can get, you can get a spoiler, you can get, you know, leather seats, but ultimately the car, the product, the software, everything that's that's created in it is going to be standard. And that's just, it's an easier way to build and manage something at a very large scale. I love the way that sounds, especially as a programmer to know exactly, you know, what things should do, how it should behave, what is expected, and uh, more importantly, how to get sign off the exact steps on how to get there. It yeah. all sounds really great, but um, we don't all operate at the scale 
that Google does. So take like your typical integration company. Would they be able to, can you imagine a company like that taking this idea and saying, this is our conference room product and offering just that and only that, or maybe two or three different variations of it and, uh, and succeeding with that kind of a business model. So that, uh, that, that beautiful sentiment and experiment has been tried several times. I actually know a few people who started the, this idea of a company where <clears throat> the end user doesn't own the room, they lease it. And it gets refreshed at the refresh cycle of the product. New features roll out and can be, you know, they're either part of a release or you can you go and say, oh, hey, we have an option now to add you know, wireless screen sharing. Do you want to do not? You know, sort of an add-on kind of thing. And I think right now no one has that appetite. And I think it's also a little too... No one little, meaning the integrators or the end user? Uh, the end user. I think the end user still needs customization at a product level that can't be satisfied by one whole room product. You know, Crestron tried that with the, you know, the link room system or whatever it was. Um, I should probably know this. I put some of them in. But, you know, it's like, here's your here's your kit. Put it in any room you want. Right. And it just, I don't think end users are ready to buy that. But I definitely think that an integrator can go to an end user and say, look, let's take all of your rooms and we can generally kind of shovel them into these buckets. And let's call each of these buckets a product. And let's give them you know, features and parameters that you can work within that make it easy for you know, your facilities planning and your lifecycle planning and your AV team to design and manage and own these. And obviously, there's always going to be outliers, and that's fine. You know, if you can cover 90% of the use cases, 90% standard is way better than 100% not standard. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, um, but definitely still on a case-by-case end-user basis. I think so. Yeah. But I think, it's the right, I think it's the right way to approach AV, even at a small scale, is to say, look, this is, you know, this is a product. It should have a life cycle. It should have a way to gather feedback. We should understand it. Um, and I think ultimately most AV organizations want to be like that. They want to have a strict three- or five-year refresh cycle, and they want to have you know, they have these plans, but it always, something always just kind of unravels and never quite works out. And you end up with rooms that are 10 or 12 years old and have who knows what in them and a bunch of varying standards. And I think it's just, it's because the thought isn't there at the moment. Yeah, it would be nice to, uh, of course, these things that are predictable, it just makes it easier to run a business. Um, but like you said, that that nut just really hasn't been cracked yet in any kind of a reliable way. So I've been talking to a lot of AV pros lately about using open platforms on LinkedIn. And the one thing that keeps coming up is, is support. So, you know, I like to use the Raspberry Pi to do automation and control or even using an iPad to control devices directly. And this stuff works. The technology is absolutely there to do it. And I'm of the belief that anybody who could program an AV system can learn these other technologies too. So technology and training really aren't the issue. But this support issue that keeps coming up, they talk about even having on-site support from a manufacturer. So if you're going to use something open source, you obviously won't have that. And there'll be savings, 
right? You won't have the premium price point either. And I kind of think of this as like a self-service type of approach, because if you go open source, you have to take all the responsibility. You have to own the solution yourself. Do you think that self-service type of a approach has a place in Pro-AV? I absolutely think it does. I, I think that there's a nervousness to it because you don't get to, you know, throw the integrator out and say, boy, boy, they, they really messed up this time. Let's try a different integrator. It's on you. It's on the quality of developers you hire. It's on the quality of, of admins that you hire to, to manage your fleet. I think from a cost perspective, there's very little difference, but it's a new realm for, it's a new realm in a way of thinking around something that was always just, you had a black box, it ran, it did its stuff. When it died, you replaced it. We're all good to it being a little more living and in front of you. And I think that scares, you know, definitely scares AV people. You know, I, I know that the, the transition from, you know, nice, you know, nice, you know, BNC cables to cat five and HDMI has been, you know, a source of, ulcers and all sorts of worry for, for many people, but I think it's the next step and it's the next evolution in integrating appropriately with, you know, with the IT scene, because really they're, they're tied at the hip. Everything is joined together. And I think if you can create a mutual partnership, you're going to end up in a better place because now you have a vested interest in making sure that your product is good and it works and it's supportable. You know, if you have your network team monitoring your AV devices, they're much happier. Yeah. So given your IT backgrounds, what would you look for in an AV programmer or integrator or even a consultant as far as, um, you know, developing those kind of mutual partnerships? I, I mean, I think you need to take it slow. I, I definitely think it's, it's worth looking at existing use cases. I think that's the hardest, that's the hardest bridge to get across. I know that you know, I've talked about this a little bit. It's that, yeah, I can say all day long and do demos and things like that, but until I see it working in a real application with users actually touching it, I, I don't have a ton of faith in it. And I think that really it's gonna take a few, it's gonna take someone going out and, and creating a use case. And I think you can start small, start with replacing your digital signage infrastructure. That one's easy. You need a box that plays some stuff for the network. Okay, let's replace small with Raspberry Pi. Let's see what the failure rate is. Let's collect metrics on it. And that's the thing for me. I, you know, I come from, I come from less of a design integration side and more from a managed service side. I want to know what it's going to do over the next one year, two year, three year, five year. What's my failure rate? What is the refresh look like? What's the total effort that it takes to maintain the system? Because that's key to a lot of a lot of design that gets left behind is what's the ongoing cost? You know, and that's that's the thing that's really difficult right now is that if I put in certain manufacturers hardware, my ongoing cost is really high. And the level of technician I have to have to work on it is really high. And the total cost of that system isn't $100,000, it's $200,000. And that's a big difference. I don't think people would be buying systems if they knew the actual cost of support and broke it down like that. And I think that's the benefit forwards 
something that's open source and software based and you know and i think more importantly it's it's cheap once you've developed your standard and your software rolling out another unit is nothing you know that, that barely that, that's that's the kind of thing that goes on the corporate cards like hey i need 50 raspberry Pis. okay you know i don't even get to go for that i just go to amazon and buy a bunch of them because why not you know and i think that's that's where the value is in in reducing that kind of ongoing cost yeah they're gonna fail you know every piece of hardware does and some are some are better than others but you know i think you just need to dive in and start gathering data okay so there's a few things that you mentioned that i want to uh i want to come back to a little bit you mentioned price um and sometimes the price comes out the same because you need a higher level of talent to integrate uh, these commodity type solutions. So that's kind of a wash, but does it offer more, is it the flexibility that makes it so attractive or is that, is that a big deciding factor as as opposed to, yeah, as opposed to proprietary? Yeah, I, I think it is. And I think also because the pool of talent is more available for development, um, see, see, know, I get mixed. Big... Some people don't believe that. <laughs> I, I think it's on. It's all in what you choose. You know, yeah. you can hire. You can hire a program team. I, I feel like it's easier to hire a program team than it is to find a really good AV programmer. Right. I mean, you, you and I both can probably name our top five favorite programmers and there aren't a lot of others that are just like stellar where you, you could throw them into, you know, a, a really challenging situation and know that they're just going to, they're just going to shine. Whereas there's a million coders. I mean, Silicon Valley has, uh, I don't know how many people <laughs> and they're all mostly programmers. And I think, you know, if we, if we go back to the idea of, you know, product, you know, productizing it, when you build yeah. a product, when you initially code it and when you go through features, you do it in sprints. So I bring 20 people in. I just work them into the ground for two or three weeks straight. And then we stop. And I think that that kind of development is like, I can staff up really high for a brief period of time and get a lot done. And software developers are used to working like that. So if I have a feature list and I want to get somewhere I can do a sprint and I can get a lot farther than I would having someone just sort of plodding through or having my AV department evaluating things and playing around and learning code. And I think that's where the benefit is that that and that cost is relatively fixed. If I say, okay, I have a product, I have a life cycle. um, I'm going to refresh it every three years. That means every three years I have a sprint and I have a sprint with a large number of resources, but I know they're only going to be there for, you know, three weeks, six weeks, however long it needs to be. And that to me is, is a lot more manageable than just saying, well, it's just going to be ongoing forever. You know, we're always going to be playing with this and tweaking it and doing firmware upgrades and looking at the new version of whatever, (laughs) whatever it may be. Yeah. How do do you, how do you want to play it? Because I think I can go into a steady state and just lock it down. What's going to change? I don't have to, I don't have to buy the new version of Raspberry Pi. I don't have to update my code library. I can just drop it in. You know, there's obviously security patches and things like that, but that's that's just basic maintenance of a you know of of a Linux environment. 
yeah, you'll, you'll make the updates, but none of that has to do really with what you've developed in the beginning. Wow. So it almost sounds like um, that, that our typical AV community are not the people to be doing things like this, that, that it becomes more in the realm of the IT department and software developers almost. Yeah, I, I would say so that, yeah, there needs to be features requested, but I think that most of it isn't hard to achieve anymore. And granted, we're talking about the, like I said, probably the 90% of cases, which is yeah, huddle rooms, five, six person rooms, you know, rooms with functionality that are, that are very basic. When you get into really high advanced spaces, yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know, if I need a, if I need a DSP programmer, well, not even, not even that, like if I need an event space with, you know, an HDSC high backbone and all that, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go to Everts, I'm going to get Ross, I'm going to Riedel, I'm going to have a Dante network. Like, there's no question. But the vast majority of rooms out there aren't complex. And I think the vast majority of solutions are over-engineered for something that's not a complex answer. Most people want to share their laptop with the screen. Right. They want to make an audio call. They want to make a video call. And if you can meet those three features, regardless of how you meet them, you're probably going to be successful in most most worlds. You know, and again, I'm, I'm you know, I don't want to oversimplify AV, but in any realm, that's kind of what it breaks down to. It's like an education. I want to teach. I want to be heard. I want to be seen. Yeah. Not. It's not a really. It's not a really complex problem that you're solving for for probably ninety percent of your use cases. And I think it's where we can start digging into more creative solutions. Yeah, definitely. Um, just as a little side story, I, I, I've actually done it once. I went to freelancer.com and had somebody write a, a, an iPad app for me. And it was just the user interface, but I gave them the specs. And a lot of it was adjustable from a, a text file. And I got it back in two days. <laughs> and then I hooked it up to my end devices with uh, TCP connections. And it was, yeah, I mean, it was great. (laughs) The guy was in China, so I gave him the specs. I went to sleep. I woke up. I got a report. I told him what to change. And in two days, the whole thing was done. And um, the price was pretty much the same as what I'd pay for an AV programmer. So it really is a valid way of getting things done. I just think, uh, yeah, people are afraid of, of different technologies. Any kind of change is obviously a bit scary. One of the other things you talked about was um, having the metrics to decide if if this is the right thing, right? So there's always going to be that first project where you don't have any data. But once you do have that data, um, you could present it to other customers, you could show other people, and on your future projects, you could um, make decisions based on that data. So what are some of the things that that um, that prevent us from actually collecting data if it's so valuable? I I mean, I think part of it is just not, you know, it's that lag in AV behind IT. IT is very, well, I'm not going to, you know, we caveat this. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of customers who are struggling with their IT side, just like their AV side in gathering meaningful data. And really it's about getting information about incidents. So a problem happens, something valuable is in that, Yeah. whether it's, the product that failed, the reason it failed, the reason it was recorded, and and that just builds over time. You know, one incident doesn't mean anything. Tons sure. of incidents can turn into a problem. 
you know, and then you identify it as a problem and you can start to identify, you know, certain products that aren't a good fit. You know, they, they consistently have the same, the same issues over and over. And I think really the problem is, is that traditional AV equipment doesn't really enable good metrics. You don't have the level of reporting that you could on, you know, on a piece of network equipment. Um, there's a lot of companies out there trying to change that. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of good monitoring software, and um, I think the the move to having everything IP connected in a room is great because then you can start to gather that that pilot data. But it's still it's still something that needs a lot of work and attention. I mean, from my point of view, really at a basic level, I just need to know if something's reliable or not, and that's a good place to start. If I put in this, you know, if I put in Brand X TV, I let it run for three years, was it reliable? How much did it cost me? Did I have, yeah. did I use tons of man hours replacing these TVs or troubleshooting them? Or did they just kind of sit and do their job? That's the kind of, that's the kind of data that lets you make, okay, we're now just through version 2.0 of this product. Am I going to stay with that same, you know, manufacturer or am I going to go a different direction because it wasn't quite what I, what I wanted it to be? So I think at a very basic level, just reliability is useful, but then you can really dig into any number of things, you know, and that's where, um, you know, especially when we talk about telephony or, or video conferencing, there's just so much data that you can pull from there, but it's almost too much. And I think that's where some of the modern monitoring tools will help because you can set thresholds, you can set boundaries to the data that you collect. Because if you collect it all, yeah, you can you can start doing data mining and really dig in and try to find trends, but ultimately no one has time for that at this level. You know, if I'm trying to optimize something that makes me money, that's one thing, but I'm, this is a system that costs money. Right. And I think that's where, that's where people don't want to spend time on, on getting data. So I think whatever level of data you can collect is going to be useful. Collecting no data, not, you know, that's, that's not going to help anyone, but at the very least just getting a list of what goes wrong and being able to look at it and, and try to find trends, that's that's the starting point. And you just go from there. You start adding more data and more information um, as you go. As you notice things that should be collected, you figure out a way to collect them. Excellent. So some of the pushback that I hear once in a while is that um, there will be companies who will never let you send anything to the cloud to be stored. Um, any thoughts on that or any thoughts on how to get around that? Uh, would you just store it locally on a server? Um, I think that that opinion is breaking down really quickly because it's getting harder and harder to maintain, you know, for instance, an exchange environment. Okay. Just isn't feasible. And when you weigh the, the potential security versus the reliability like I'm a hundred times more likely to have a locally hosted managed exchange environment go down versus a cloud-based one. You know, that's just, yeah. the numbers are just against you. You can't possibly have enough exchange servers running, you know, and make it reasonable from a cost perspective than they can running in the cloud. In the cloud, they've optimized everything. Yeah, That's why when the Intel bug came out, everyone was furious because losing a few percent efficiency that's calculated 
And so a few percent is like, is, is massive at that scale. You know, people, people running local stuff is like, okay, a few percent, whatever. But when you multiply it out by millions, it's really, really meaningful. And I think for people that don't think that you should host, you know, you shouldn't host anything in the cloud. I don't, I don't really understand that. I don't think it's any more secure. I don't think it's any more reliable keeping it on prem. I think it's just a control thing. You know, yeah. it's what, what, what do you want to have control over? The other thing too, and this is something that I've, I've had a lot of discussion with in AV is that what valuable information is your AV system sending out that would just devastate you if someone knew about it? <laughs> like, like, did you hear <laughs> HDMI input one? Right. Far more than HDMI input two. Oh my goodness. Scandalous. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> and I think that is, you know, that that to me, you know, if we get back to I think, you know, a comment you made a while ago, you talked about you know, collecting data and sharing it. That doesn't happen. Every every end user. I'm not going to say every end user, but most end users closely guard their AV system. You know, my, my, my dream world would be that if I develop a new product, you know, let's say I'm, I'm a, I'm an end user. I develop a new room product. I get done with the design. I run it for a few years. I have user feedback. I have metrics. I have tons of information and I have a complete design. When I release a version 2.0, Version 1.0 goes open source. Someone else can use it. Yeah. And I know that early on in my career, it would have made a world of difference for me to see effective, well-designed systems or even poorly designed systems with the data saying, here's everything we did wrong Absolutely. out there in the wild. And that doesn't happen. People act like, um, act like drawings are just this like, closely guarded secret that if someone gets a glance at that drawing, they're just going to crack the industry wide open. And that's, that's just absurd. You know, I, I don't, I think that a sharing, I, I understand why integrators don't do it because that is their proprietary piece of information. That's something, you know, a lot of them have a design that you kind of you know, rinse and repeat and tweak to your customers. But for an end user, you know, why not? Why don't you share that? And why don't you open that out to to the rest of the community? Because a lot of us could could stand to to learn from it. Absolutely. So it sounds like obviously open source. The motivator behind that is because that's how programmers learn to code, right? Most programmers used some kind of open source at some point in their life to uh, to learn how to do what they do today, and it's just more. I don't know what it is. I think maybe because it's it's more based on the individual and the immediate need. I need some code to learn from right now. And they appreciate that somebody gave it to them. So they're more willing to open source their own stuff. So other people could, could learn from that. Um, it would be nice to find a way to get that on an organizational level where if people approach their systems with these product mindset and once, once it's archived, once 2.0 comes out, that 1.0 could be uh, out there for other people to learn from. And it would probably improve our industry overall. It's a really interesting take on things. Yeah, and I think really my my view of open source, I mean, most people view open source as, well, I'm giving something away for free. It's like, not no, necessarily. you're giving a look for free. Yeah, yeah you, 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 you can look at it. Look at it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's how, you know, like when I was learning HTML back when I was, you know, I was in, you know, early high school and, you know, the web was getting going. It's like I learned by viewing source and just pulling code apart. It was all visible. I could see it. I could download scripts and I could look at things. And that to me was such a valuable learning tool, just being able to look at it. And I think that part of the, you know, if we go back to part of the reason that I think the AV industry is struggling with getting new talent in, most people drop in and have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Because they don't, they don't even have a chance to, they don't get a little sneak preview of it. People just kind of go, ah, oh, the AV industry, boy, it's, you should give that a try. Well, what is it? Ah, oh, can't tell you. Can't tell you. It's a secret. <laughs> it's proprietary. Find out. <laughs> and that's something I, I get, you know, on, on LinkedIn, I've talked to a number of people that have just, they've asked for advice. You know, I've, I've met them through other forums or even just on LinkedIn and they just reach out to me and I am always happy to see someone interested and I try to give them as much as I can because to me, just being able to see what the work looks like helps you make a decision. And I think the work is attractive, but I don't think it's very transparent at the moment what we do day in and day out. And, and honestly, I don't really know what most AV people do day in and day out. Maybe that's my problem is that I don't know what people do day after day, you know, because I, Up, I upgrade firmware. I guess. Yeah. It's like, what are you doing this month? Same thing as I do every month. We upgrade firmware. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of that too, where every project you kind of start from zero. Um, basically, probably because we don't adopt these modern software development approaches where a lot of things are open source so you don't have to repeat yourself over and over yeah. you, you know just taking a package that's already done and using it in your project just um doing that is, is kind of a challenge right you got to copy and paste it and make sure things line up the right way and things like that whereas with something like uh, i'm a big fan of node.js you just type in npm and the name of the package you want to install and yeah. boop, it's part of your project it's it's ridiculously yeah. easy um, I'd love to see more of that in AV, but it's uh, with the closed source approach, it's it's almost impossible to uh, to start doing things that way. So let's talk about some different technologies. We uh, we had a chat a few weeks ago, and um, I know you're also a big fan of WebRTC, having worked at Google. And yes. I was really surprised. Uh, this is actually a nice lead-in from what I just said. There are a few open source projects, PeerJS and Simple Simple Peer are a few of them. And uh, I was able to make my own video conferencing application in just a couple of hours using these open source technologies. And yeah. uh, it was based on WebRTC. So what do you think, if any, uh, WebRTC, what kind of uh, an impact it'll have on, on AV? I think, oh, so, I mean, I think WebRTC is poised to change everything because it's so because it's been open source, because it's been adopted as a standard across all devices. I mean, if you go, you know, go to the, you know, go to the page on it and you'll see it's like every browser except for Internet Explorer because they just got to be different. But Edge does support it. Um, iOS, Android, whatever Samsung's weird OS is, I mean, they all support it because they realized that there was a need for a pure cross-platform way of communicating. It's not perfect, you know, it's subject to the whims of network and and things like that. But I think from a just a pure development standpoint, you know, if I if I have a small company, 
I can I can use WebRTC for free. Yeah. There's a million websites where I can just go in and type in a you know type in a random string of letters at the end of their address, and it spins up a room, and I can invite people in, and it's the same experience you have on Hangouts and FaceTime and experiences like that. It's a collaborative environment. I can chat. I can talk to people, and I think it's it's a really important uh, <clears throat> it's a really important piece of technology in changing the way we think about collaboration. And I think one of the biggest things, you know, especially, you know, bringing Google into it, one of the biggest things that they did was reduce the cost to the point that they could be so widespread and so saturated that everyone has access to it. You know, I, uh, in preparation for, for talking to you, I kind of, kind of went and did a refresher on the, you know, the, the history of video conferencing and it's always been this this dual path of hardware versus software you know you had at picture tell very hardware based hardware 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 you had see you see me the old cornell written you know it's basically the first software based video conferencing platform that went its route and it's always kind of been these two sides of things. I mean, most of my first experiences with video, you know, it's called video conferencing, was on platforms like Yahoo Messenger and MSN Messenger and Skype, those sort of social platforms. And I think people like me that grew up using social platforms for video don't really want to go into a work environment and have this like heavy, restricted way of conferencing. And I think that WebRTC helps unify a lot of the differences. Like, obviously, as a you know, as a company, we can't be like, well, everyone's on FaceTime now. It's not going to happen. It doesn't work because yeah. then you, have to, you know, then you get tied back to hardware again. Right. But having a standard that's open across all platforms, you know, it's a soft, it's open across software. It doesn't matter what you're running. If you run Chrome, you're running WebRTC. And I think that that ability to heavily saturate video into the environment is really valuable. You know, and, and like you said, I, you could get up and running in a few hours with a basic video conferencing service. Yeah. I was, I was really surprised at how approachable <laughs> it was. I really was. I'm, yeah. I'm not the greatest programmer and it was uh, pretty amazed at that. Um, I like the way you pointed out that that um, it is really a software-defined solution. Sometimes I have a hard time explaining what software-defined means, and that's a perfect example of it. Like if if you have to use FaceTime, then you need their hardware, so it becomes hardware-defined. But when you can break free of that, and um, the application will run basically anywhere with minimal requirements, mm-hmm. then um, then you're dealing with a software-defined solution, and things just become a whole lot more flexible, and yeah. uh, and even like agile. So this is, you talked about it from the point of view of more of like collaboration, video conferencing, face-to-face meetings. Uh, have you given any thought of using it as a WebRTC as, as like a screen sharing solution on, on a local network? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it works. Like, I, I think there's still, I think most end users and most IT people have kind of wrapped their heads around UC. You know, UC is, is a, buzzword that's been around for a long time. And I guess it's not a buzzword. It defines something really specific. And that's chat, video, screen sharing, 
you know, it's, it's, it's a way to collaborate across multiple platforms. And I think that WebRTC is definitely a good way to do, you know, audio and screen sharing, chat and screen sharing. Um, I think it's, it's uses are just however you choose to work. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So <laughs> the last time we talked, um, you, you told me you were, uh, about to make, you were traveling and you were going to make a few stops on your way back mm-hmm. growing, growing up in the nineties. It was uh, pretty difficult not to escape that decade without getting a few piercings, not, not the big hole in your ear piercings that, that the kids have these days, but, um, there was a very much a thing having piercings. And of course, tattoos are very popular. Would you, uh, care to share with us some of the things that, um, you've been experimenting with lately that are kind of more technology oriented, but along the same lines. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm fascinated by, and, and I, and I think my first exposure to this and, you know, we're going to call it biohacking because, you know, Hey, we need, we need a cool word for it. All right. So biohacking is where you implant, um, little bits of electronics into your body. And, and we've been doing this for years and years and years with animals. Um, take a little capsule. It's got, you know, their name and address and information. And you know, if an animal is found, you scan it and you get that information. Humans have the same ability. I've got plenty of little pockets of skin and places where I can hide things that, you know, won't reject and people don't particularly know about. And so I am, I am embarking on, on my first two uh, implants. One will be uh, NFC. The other one will be RFID just because, you never know what you need to clone and <laughs> and reproduce. Future proofing, future proofing. Yeah, and there's there's obviously higher you know there's higher density uh, medium that you can put in with a little more pain and suffering. But it's an it's an interesting way of working. I, I met a man in uh, London and um, covered in tattoos, crazy. Like I thought he was just you know I thought he was just some kind of insane guy drinking in a bar started talking to him, he worked in security at Barclays and he broke the tap to pay cards. So he, he wrote an app. It's like, this is the app I wrote. He said, do you have a tap to pay card? And I was like, I'm not giving you a tap to pay card. He's like, I'll do it with mine. Tapped <laughs> it. Everything read out. He's like, this is a problem. Holy this crap. Is the short sightedness of just thinking that, you know, because you have that proximity, you're safe. He said, yeah, in a matter of minutes, I can take your card, clone it here, clone it to my hand, and I can walk around town just buying stuff however I want because yeah. I have your information. And I, I, it was fascinating to me, so I started researching some of the technology and where it is, and it's all very, um, you know, it's not approved at this point, but there's, you know, they estimate probably about 100 to 200,000 people have some kind of implant that they're working with, whether it's you know, magnetic, so they can sense uh, electronic fields. A lot of electricians do that, so you can see if a wire is hot by oh, by proximity wow. to the to the magnets that are in your skin, because it helps enhance the the sensitivity. Um, <laughs> NFC, RFID. You know, some people use it to store uh, encryption keys. Some people use it just for basic things like unlocking their phone. Um, but it's really about having you know having a little bit closer physical security of what you. Oh, and I mean, my, my dream situation would be to walk around with nothing but my hands and be able to buy things, unlock my car and start it, unlock my front door and just not have to carry around, you know, keys and dongles and things like that. I mean, obviously I could just carry around an RFID chip, but 
where's the fun in that? Exactly. <laughs> Sounds a little far-fetched and, and uh, sci-fi, but um, yeah, I, I definitely think things like this will become more prevalent as, as the use cases and applications become more, more commonplace. Well, and the reason I wanted to do it was, you know, I've talked to a number of people who are just freaked out by it. And yeah. part of it is like, I, I wanted to put it in to, to educate myself. I think there's, there's okay. fear associated with so much technology because you understand it's like, yeah, it's a little RFID loop. What's the big deal? Right. You know, I, I, I want to understand it and I want other people to understand it because people get super freaked out when you talk about, you know, putting in an implant with information like, Oh, they're tracking you. It's like, okay, so that's impossible. <laughs> I would have to be in an RFID reading world room. Yeah. Inches away from me at all times to detect that I have this piece of info on me. I'm the only one that knows that I have it. Yeah. And, well, not anymore. Well, <laughs> two or three. Of, two you or don't know three. where I'm putting it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of options still. <laughs> nice. So I really like that overcoming your fear of technology by just educating yourself and learning about it and getting, getting hands on. That's something uh, I think the AV industry could really do a lot more of. So given your experience working with uh, enterprise end users, what, what's some tips or advice you could have for maybe integrators or software developers to kind of differentiate themselves? And like, even like a company like Google, do they even use 30 party software? Nope. It's all, no. I mean, they use, they have a little bit of Crestron. So there's, there's Crestron control where it's needed, but most of it is developed in house as part of their, their video conferencing solution. Um, you know, just, just to be clear, you know, cause we didn't, we didn't touch on it specifically, but yeah, they run entirely on WebRTC. That's in their entire platform. So yeah. they develop this, they help develop the standard. They use it extensively. They're a good use case for why an open source platform can be deployed at a massive scale. Um, I think the biggest thing you can do is come in with concrete, creative ideas. I think a lot of end users are ready for something new. You know, we've been we've been offering the same thing in just a little bit different flavor year after year. That's why, you know, shows like Infocom, I attend them and I like them, but I could skip probably two years at a time. Yeah. And not really have missed that much. Like, yeah, there's an announcement here and there, but generally, you go from booth to booth. You're like, oh, you know, a little bit different firmware, you know, different screen printing, slightly different. There's there's little incremental changes, and I think that end users would be excited by something new and different. How would you kind of find out? So there's this, if it's going to be new and different, they obviously don't know about it yet, right? <laughs> Otherwise yeah. they would be asking for it. So there's like this gap and I guess creativity is where, where that plays a role of, you know, what would be useful and, uh, and, and creating something like that and, and raising awareness about it. Any ideas on how to like fill that, that void there? I, I mean, I think just, Showing it off, you know, it, it takes nothing to build. Um, you know, I think we talked about this, like create a you know a TV with a little kiosk that spins up a little ad hoc WebRTC session so you can share it to it. Like I've yeah. just built, I just built a wireless screen sharing system that costs, you know, it's minimal. The cost yeah. is minimal. You do it without interfaces and keys and codes. You know, you can you can get a proximity sensor and get it to turn on and off and it creates a unique code every time. So there's, there's security built in, there's features built in. 
I think the fear is if you show something off like that and they ask for it, then you gotta, <laughs> you gotta deliver it. <laughs> then you gotta build it. And so it's, it's, I, I really think, I don't think integrators have the incentive to do that. Yeah. You know, they, they right now don't have, you know, it's, it's such a tight competitive market. The margins are pretty well set across all the, you know, everything sure. that, yeah, it would differentiate you, but also you're putting, you know, you're putting money at risk by going in and developing a solution and kind of taking it to market. You're starting to step on the toes of, of manufacturers. And I think really the place for it to come from is the end users. They need to ask for it. And, you know, someone like me, I believe heavily in, in educating, you know, educating without any strings. I don't like giving presentations where I get you to about 90% and then you're like, if you want the rest of the story, <laughs> sign up for my newsletter or hire me. Like I want to give you tools to start playing. Yeah. Maybe you'll, you know, maybe you'll need help with it, but maybe it's just enough to spark your interest and get you going. Um, I'm really excited to see what the education market is doing. Um, you know, BYU, Cornell, they're both digging in and definitely you know, coincidentally Cornell, uh, professor from Cornell was the one who wrote CUC me, which kicked off the whole computer based video conferencing movement. So right. they have a history of, of being innovators in, in this space. And I think that as you see more you know, in action use cases, you know, BYU being a really good one, it's in use. You can go see it. Yeah, talk to them. it's not it's not just an idea. You know, we're you know right now we kind of we kind of sound like dreamers, but it's on GitHub. It, it's it's happening. It's real and yeah. <laughs> it exists. Just because you don't see it and it's not being pitched to you, right. you know, get above if you get above the you know the sales pitch and and what's sort of the norm for AV and start digging into those sort of weird pockets of it, you're going to find people doing really unique stuff that works really well. Yeah. Yeah. So much to unpack there and think about. Um, we've been going for a while now. Um, do you have a few more minutes? I do. Okay. Cause there was one other thing that came up at the end of our last talk and that was contract manufacturing. Do you uh. think, yeah. So this one is really going to get people a little excited because you were mentioning, right. This, uh, that, that the margins are pretty much the same across product lines, across integrators. Um, so what are you competing on? Basically, I don't know how much you're willing to give up. So maybe yeah. actually contract manu manufacturing equipment could be an interesting way to, um, to get back in the game somehow. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I, I agree. I mean, I think that's that falls back into this idea of treating something as a product. You know, if I if I understand, you know, obviously, I think in most cases you drop in this. You know, if you started managing AV as a product, you'd drop kind of in the middle of something. But you have an idea of how many rooms you have. You have an idea of what's needed, and you can start looking for those opportunities to manufacture your own equipment or have it manufactured for you. You know, microphones is a good example and cables, you know, the markup on those is insane. I can get a $6 microphone on AliExpress. Granted, I have to buy a hundred of them, but it's a $6 microphone and it performs pretty closely to anything that most of the major manufacturers put out, you know, just a little, little flat boundary mic. Yeah. That's huge. That's a huge opportunity. It's a huge opportunity to have control. And a lot of those companies that are making that, want to work with you they want to work with you to improve the product they want to work with you to customize it 
And so you can start developing your own standards and making things your own. You know, even even down to just, you know, it's like, oh, I just want, you know, I want the cord to be a different color. It's like, cool. Yeah, let's do it. Let's give you some, you know, a little design flair to what you're doing. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity there to reevaluate the way that you view AV and the way you view the ownership of it beyond beyond what we have now. And again, I don't want to pick extensively on integrators, but they're tied into a system that doesn't, you know, that, that kind of gatekeeps. And if I can find a way to work through that and around that, I have, I have opportunities to, to explore different spaces. Yeah. Some stuff is junk, some stuff isn't, but that's part of your evaluation process. You know, I can order samples of everything out there and see what works and what doesn't, and then make a decision and go. And I think that ultimately the, the sense of ownership and the sense, you know, the, the actual level of control is, is pretty cool. Yeah, it definitely increases. You do have to have some kind of scale in order to do that. But um, yeah, definitely a new approach that I'm kind of fascinated by. Yeah. I've, I've spoken with a few folks and a good friend of mine is a material science um, engineer and he, he's the head of product development for a lighting company and when he first started in that role, had no manufacturing experience. And he said, you know, five years later, it's like, you would be surprised how easy it is to get a product made exactly to your custom, you know, your specifications. Really? If you can draw it and you can specify it, you can source those parts because ultimately that's what everyone else is doing. Yeah. <laughs> they're going out, they're going out and they're finding someone to make their driver. Someone to make their, you know, talking about last week, someone to make their driver, someone to make the chat, you know, the body, you know, there's, there's obviously still those, you know, boutique shops that do things by hand. But for the most part, you find a company that does injection molding. You find a company that makes little drivers. You find someone to put it all together and then you screen print your logo on it. And there's really no difference in going out and doing it yourself other than the effort and the confidence to do that. And again, that's a level of ownership that I don't know that a lot of people are comfortable with. Same thing with owning your own design. You yeah. could easily own your own design and not, source it out. You can come to the table and say, this is what you'll be installing. But you're responsible at the end for owning it. I yeah. like it. And I'm sure you do, but <laughs> it's not it's not for everyone. And I, and I do want to caveat that, that, you know, when we do talk about these ideas, it's not for everyone. Right. Some user groups, you know, some users aren't going to respond well to it. They want something that is extremely stable extremely reliable, extremely, not to say that those can't be, but there is an element of, you know, kind of. There is some experimentation before you get to release 1.0. Yeah. Sure. And I think that that's, I think that that's the challenge is, is having the confidence to take a risk. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that, that, I think more than anything impacted me from being at Google was they you know, had this idea of what's called a moonshot. And a moonshot is an actual risk. I'm putting my money or my reputation or my job on the line for something that I think will be revolutionary. And what they did when they developed their GDC system based on WebRTC was that they said, okay, we have a huge traditional infrastructure and we're tired of it. It doesn't work for us. It doesn't work at scale. And they wrote their own video conferencing platform. That's insane. Yeah. But 
it's paid off massively. It turned into a product for them. They, sure. They've gone to market with that as a part of the G Suite. It's like, okay, I mean, if they never took that risk, they'd still just be struggling through the same relationship everyone else has with their video conferencing infrastructure. They'd be limited. You know, they'd be they'd be cutting down on the number of video calls because they just can't support it. So I think there are ways to take those little moonshots within your environment, you know, build up your tolerance for risk, you know, try, try something that costs a little bit. And if you fail, it doesn't hurt quite so bad and scale up from there until you're just, you know, taking crazy risks. <laughs> Excellent. I love the sound of that. Colin, if anybody'd like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Um, you can get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Uh, just my name, Colin Bernie, B-I-R-N-E-Y. You can also email me, Colin at BernieConsulting.com. And I will be happy to chat with you about whatever. I'm always down for a good, um, a good lively discussion about the future of AV and, and what's good and what isn't. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to, to chat with folks, you know, you know, I'm not, I am a consultant, but I think I've been told by a lot of people that I'm not a very good one because I don't sell enough. <laughs> uh, so if you email me, I'm never getting around to asking you if you need any help, but I'm always happy to talk and, and, and offer suggestions and um, help point you in the right direction when you're looking for something new and different um, because that's what I want ultimately. I want to see our industry change. I want to see it get better and more creative. And I think that it's going to start with a few key people stepping out and taking risks. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show, Colin. Absolutely. Thank you, Patrick. Take care. Hey, Patrick here again. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, if you liked what you've heard, if you want to hear more discussions like this, please go to iTunes, leave a review, subscribe to the show, send me a comment, get in touch with me somehow and let me know that you're out there listening and that'll motivate me to keep doing these shows and get more great guests on. So if you're driving or whatever, ask Siri to set something in your calendar to give you a reminder to go to iTunes and leave a review. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. For transcripts and show notes, go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com.